This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to the Slate Political Gap Fest for July 6th, 2017, the ICBM edition. I'm David Plotz of Alice Obscura. And oh, for abject day, oh joy, oh rapture, because for the first time in a really long time, we all three are together in a room by all three. We're all three on, together on the show, number one. Well, that's Yeah, a, that's yeah. even an accomplishment. Yeah. And it's John's birthday, and which is super oh exciting gosh. and lovely. It's, it's John's birthday. I, We're celebrating John's birthday, I know. And our t- birthday and our togetherness. Neither rain nor sleet nor dead of night. I think uh, it's so, so um, extremely John-like to have his birthday so close to... The nation's birthday. It seems really appropriate. But think? not the same day. No, that would be, he doesn't want to overshadow America. America. Exactly. He doesn't want to overshadow America, but exactly. just be close to it. Right, right. A sort of gesture of solidarity yeah. without taking any of the, you know, shine away from the nation. Uh, so that, of course, is Emily Bazelon of the New York Times Magazine. Hello, Emily. Hello, hello. I'm so glad to be here with you guys. And that other voice was, of course, John Dickerson of CBS's Face the Nation. Hello, John. Hello, David. It is. I, when was the last time it wasn't a live show that we were together? It's I mean, a, been a long like, time. Uh, it's like the Buchanan administration. <laughs> yes. Uh, that was brief. It was a brief administration. <laughs> we didn't do that many shows then. Um, they were tough they were on there. that pre-Civil War shows. Those yeah. 1850s. I was always giving you know credit to the Southerners <laughs> for you know wanting to... Having integrity or something. Totally trying to normalize Buchanan. On this week's GabFest, the rage about the Election Integrity Commission's grab for every single little bit of voter data in the United States. Then, what is going to happen when Donald Trump and Vladimir Putin sit down together on Friday in Germany? And then, are we going to war in North Korea? God, I hope not. That would be inconvenient for everybody involved. Plus, we will have cocktail chatter, of course. So... The Election Integrity Commission, that is a fine bit of uh, Orwellian language from the Trump administration, created by President Trump, chaired by Mike Pence, guided, of course, by Kansas's Chris Kobach, the Nigini of voter fraud. They got to work last month asking every state to send an email, just send an email to us at the White House, containing the full election records of the state, name, address, birth date, party registration, last four digits of social security number, voting record. Basically, your full identity fraud kit. <laughs> and to you're the supposed White to House. send it to an unsecured email address or a portal that has no hacking defenses on it. So, this request has been met with rage and derision 
across the nation, essentially every state. At least at this point, it's 44 states, and then the other six, I think, have— 46 we're now. Uh, 46. I think, I think. As a, as the headline I saw this morning was 44, but maybe two more. Anyway, 40s. Has, has told them to buzz off for reasons of voter privacy, federal overreach, in some cases feared that Kobach would use the data to engage in a poorly researched voter suppression campaign. So, Emily, what, what are they asking for, and why is everyone saying no? Well, they're asking for a lot of data. You just specified the types. And some states have rules or laws that don't allow for the release of this data. Now, Kobach tried to save this by going on TV and on NPR and saying, well, we only asked for whatever is legal for them to release. But there are a few competing dynamics here. So one is just kind of norms of privacy and concerns about creating a huge national database that then would be like ripe for the picking for hackers or identity thieves. And another is the value of federalism. States run their own elections. And while the Constitution allows the federal government, allows Congress to have some involvement, in general, states have been the dominant players in all of this. And the states red, purple, and blue, did not appreciate what seemed like a very kind of overreaching move by this election commission. So that's why you see such strong bipartisan opposition, these kind of privacy and federalism values. And then there's the longer game, which is what is this commission about? And because Chris Kobach is in charge and um, Hans von Spakovsky, who I know has like a name I should never have to say again. But, but I got you did it, it very well. Correctly once. Yeah. So these are the twin architects of the huge push to claim that in-person voter um, fraud is a major problem in the United States when – there have been many studies showing otherwise. And so because these two people who to the civil rights communities are like the two twin monsters um, in the voting rights world, because they're involved, the commission itself seems entirely suspect. And so most of the people watching this are expecting this commission to come out with a set of recommendations that push for more purging of voter rolls, push for essentially making it harder to vote. And I'm happy to talk more about that in a minute because this area of law, which has to do with the Motor Voter Law and the Help America Vote Act, it's going to be very hot in the next few months or year. You're going to hear lots about purging rolls and who's on the rolls and how much of a problem it is that there are dead people on the rolls. It's going to be a big issue. It's a fairly intricate, interesting law. But this overarching concern in the civil rights community that the purpose of this commission is to deny the vote and suppress the vote. That's what's driving the kind of huge pushback here. And Chibata rolls. It's, there, there is something so uh, sickly ironic about the idea that these Guys are so obsessed with this notion that there's this in-person voter fraud, which is a totally illusory, trumped-up, manufactured issue. And so in the course of investigating this, they then do the very thing, like endanger, put a huge amount of voter data, uh, expose it, put it in danger, make it vulnerable to hacking, which in fact is the threat, which we've already seen from an outside well, country. And we should note that the president responded to these states that told uh, his commission to go buzz off, including the most – 
kind of flamboyant of which was the Secretary of State of Mississippi, who said that um, my reply would be they can go jump in the Gulf of Mexico. And Mississippi is a great state to launch from, getting a little like Chamber of Commerce pitch in there. Plus, uh, I loved um, it. I totally went for that Southern uh, charm on that one. Republican from Mississippi, I should, we should note. But um, uh, and so the president responded and said, what do these states have to hide? So just comparing, picking up on David's point, two, there have been two, uh, let's let's compare two uh, issues of meddling in the election. There's the one for which there's no evidence on the order that the president has. Um, we can talk about evidence in a minute, but the president has said three to five million uh, I- illegal votes cast. There's no evidence for that. Um, no one in his uh, administration will support that. Uh, Sean Spicer famously said that is a belief that he holds. And there, so there's no evidence for a claim the president makes. And yet when these states rebuffed him, the president was tweeting right away, going at the motives of the state, uh, which actually in, in uh, celebration of the 4th of July, the states were exercising their 10th Amendment rights. And so it was a little civics lesson there at the moment. But then we go to the other side where you have mountains of intelligence suggesting the Russians interfered in the election. The president's uh, Justice Department prosecuting somebody for releasing information about Russians interfered in the election. You have all of that evidence mounted up and the president still doesn't believe it happened. So if you just compare those two things about meddling in the election, it's quite a stark difference between and obviously the distinction is that in the case of the Russians, it was efforts that the president uh, doesn't uh, want to embrace that may have helped him. And then in this case, their efforts that he thinks uh, helped his opponent. I'm so glad you brought that up because it also goes to the tragedy of all of this, which is that we desperately need a real election integrity commission. We need a lot of attention to how the voting machines work, how to make sure they can't be hacked, how to be really sure that our balloting process is secure and safe. And instead, we're not having that conversation. We're having this other ridiculous conversation, which I'll get into in a minute, about purging roles. Like, it just – when you think about the real problems and the real – the like, deep concerns about the American electoral system, this is not it. And this is a total distraction from it. It's very sad. And it's very sad that the Republican Party has so hitched its – its fortunes to this as an issue and has made so much of it because it is it is a ridiculous issue. It's a well, non-issue. not everybody. I mean, well, some of these secretaries por- of states are Republicans. And no, but that's right. not it. But they're two different issues. This is a every this was a chance for everyone to get outraged about this federal overreach and privacy issue. That doesn't mean that the voter suppression efforts that aren't that are taking place at the state level and the national level are not going to continue. That's right. So to get a little deeper into the weeds here, the Supreme Court is going to hear a case next term about about Ohio purging its role. So Ohio so to back up one step, the Motor Voter Law, which is the National Voter Registration Act, I think that was the one that was passed in 93. It has two provisions in it. One, part of it is to make voting easier. So for example, their states are supposed to make it easier to register at various state offices including where people get benefits. Okay. The other part though is that states are supposed to maintain accurate roles. And that sounds like a totally good goal. And it is, except when it turns into an excuse to basically chuck people from the rolls who just aren't paying a lot of attention. So what was happening in Ohio was that if you didn't vote two years in a row, the state would send you a notice 
that was kind of confusingly worded, suggesting that you could get dropped from the rolls, but not actually making it entirely clear. And the state was doing this not because you had sent in a change of address form or even because they had checked the national change of address database, which is a thing that turns out to exist, just simply because you didn't vote. So then once you get the notice, if you didn't send it back and then you didn't vote for four years and in two federal elections, they were just going to drop you. So in other words, without any indication that someone had moved out of the state or died, the state was just like cleaning things up. And of course, most of the people getting cleaned up tend to be lower income people. I think in Ohio, the number was 7,500 people they were taking off the rolls. They were sued. The Sixth Circuit, which is the Court of Appeals that has jurisdiction over Ohio, blocked the state from doing this, saying that when you look at the motor voter law, it... The judges were doing a kind of close reading of the statute, and they said the not voting cannot be the trigger for kicking someone off the rolls. And even though there were these interim steps, that was the trigger. So the state was blocked from doing this. But the Supreme Court is going to hear that case. It does not seem like a good sign for um, making voter voting easier that the Supreme Court is planning to weigh in. And then you have— Why? Because oh, you think the court will uphold the— Lawmakers in Ohio. Yeah. yeah, like why take the case if you're going to affirm the Sixth Circuit? The Sixth Circuit decision is perfectly plausible and from a pro-voting point of view, a good decision. There have been other states. Florida got into trouble with something similar to this a few years ago where it turned out, lo and behold, almost everyone getting kicked off had a Latino surname. Um, but many of them were people who were entirely legitimately on the rolls. Anyway, there are problems. I mean, one of the things that voting officials of all ideologies and political parties complain about is that they don't have you they there's a database of um immigrants who are not allowed to vote people who don't have citizenship yet but it's not searchable by name and so that kind of place where you might want to actually do some checking and look for matches is not available to them let's say for a moment you take the position that all the sloppiness of the rules should be cleaned up and you believe that there's fraud that uh that no fraud should exist the execution of this here, including the overbroad request, which if they in fact just wanted states to release what they could release, there's a very simple way to do that is to put it in the letter that they sent out to the states asking them to release what they could release. Anyway, the the sloppy execution here totally undermines the goal of the commission. And this is not the first time this has happened from the administration. The sloppy execution of the travel ban undermined its execution. The sloppy execution of the health care from the White House perspective has undermined its execution with the president now saying that he wants repeal and replace on a different timeline when he insisted, contrary to what Mitch McConnell and Paul Ryan wanted, that it had to be done simultaneously or within the same hour, as he once uh, said. So for me, it fits into a pattern of ways in which the sloppy execution for an administration that came in promising the efficiency of business undermines the actual goals of the administration. Leave, leave aside whatever your ideological views are. It's undermining what the president says he wants to do simply because they're just – it's just sl- – Group just basic old sloppiness. Well, John, actually, that leads me to another question I had, which is that this has clearly been a um, reversal for Kobach and Pence and and I, I can't even say von Spakovsky, who really should, if he wants to be loved, he should change that name. The name is just sinister. It's a terribly sinister name. Anyway, that's neither here nor there. But how um, how do they reverse this? I mean, what's the, what's the way you regain the political? momentum on this or the the political edge well it's fascinating actually because 
like so many other things in this administration, you see actually two roots here. And this, again, is is uh, symptomatic of this administration. You see the president on the one hand judging the motives and questioning the motives of the states that have denied the request. And then you have Kobach uh, and presumably the vice president. I don't know if he's spoken on this, but we can intuit what his response which would be, which is, oh, sorry, uh, we didn't mean, you know, this has just been misinterpreted. Whatever so you want to give us is backing. fine with us. Oh, and by the way, my own state of Ca- of Kansas and Mike Pence's state of Indiana will not be turning over all this data. Right. <laughs> so, so you again, you have two and this has happened again and again in the administration. You have the traditional walking back, and I'll get to your question in a second, David. And then you have the president kind of not walking back, but you know, co- going forward and with a hammer. So the question is then, what do they get? Well, I think what they what they'll do is they'll say, "We'll take whatever you got," and then look at what they've got and see if they can then proceed uh, along their route. Now, the question, of course, what is their route? The title of the commission suggests, well, this is a dispassionate inquiry into the state of voting in America. But the what Kobach has said and what the president has certainly said when he called it a voter fraud commission, he sort of put the, you know, let the cat out of the wallet, as they would have said in the 19th century. Oh, I um, like that. Um, and uh, – <laughs> And that's basically that they're driving towards a result, not not driving, not, uh, not an open-ended inquiry. There's another thing we should mention, though, that is – so this commission doesn't have any legal authority to prosecute or really, like, enforce. They can make recommendations to Congress and make a hullabaloo, but that's it. The Justice Department, though, has a lot of authority. And on the same and day – guess who's in charge of the Justice Department? Yes, exactly. Jeff Sessions. And on the same day that I believe that this um, letter we've been talking about went out, another letter from DOJ went out to all the states asking what they are all doing to enforce – Section 8 of the Motor Voter Act, which is the part about how you're supposed to maintain accurate roles, i.e. get rid of all the people who are dead or have moved, clean things up. And, you know, the reaction to people from the Obama DOJ was to say, well, look, if they had sent this letter to one or two states based on some evidence that those states were behind the eight ball, that would be totally unremarkable. Yes, the federal government has the power to enforce Section 8 of this law. But to send this letter to all the states, it's like they're fishing. And why are they doing that? And is this a kind of message that, you know, instead of making it easier to vote by enforcing the part of the law that um, increases access to the ballot, they're like going to turn the ship of the voting rights section in the Civil Rights Division to Section 8 and this purging, which I will say when I was reporting on the Justice Department shifting to the Trump DOJ in the winter. This was a big issue for Hans von Spakovsky and other people who had been in the Bush Justice Department and felt that the Obama people were just like leaving Section 8 and doing nothing about it. And so this notion of a shifting is, you know, a real thing that we could be watching to happen that does have enforcement I mean, it's power. It's just incredible waste of effort when you think about the actual. I mean, so right. I mean, yeah. what the so chaos. dead people, if dead people are on the rolls, what's the big deal? Can well, they vote? They, can they, they vote? No. And they, there, and there is no evidence that anyone's voting for them. There's and, a, anyway. There's well, a, there's a lot of um numerical sleight of hand in the way this is argued too, which yes. is frustrating because what so to, uh, I see at least two things happening and Emily, you, you know this much better than I, but one is the referencing back to the Pew, Pew 2012 study, which has been both debunked and also I think isn't that the one that the authors quibble with the way in which it's been used? Yes, it did find that there are 1.8 million people in the country probably who are on the rolls and shouldn't be. But the notion that that means there's fraud, that's the the problem. Right. I think I'm on the rolls in New Hampshire. People use use that million figure 
interchangeably with the idea that they're voting and then they're, they're not. They're illegally on the rolls. They're like Steve Bannon and Jared Kushner and others who I think it was Jared Kushner anyway, who are registered in double places and they only vote in one. And it's not indicative of um, of actual fraud. It's like your laptop. Like you don't clean up your laptop. There are a lot of old files on it. They sit there. They don't hurt anyone except, you know, in the very, very rare instance where there are like a handful of people who vote in two places and then those – Tiny examples are held up as like proof that, you know, an election is going to be turned because of this. I have um, one final thing on this, which is actually going to the specific data that was requested. And and I think because I'm a reporter or have been a reporter in my life, I knew vaguely that my what party I'm registered in is public. And I think I probably knew that how many what elections I voted in was public. But that did make me think, is that is that data that should be public? I think it's useful when people run for office to know what their voting history is, and that's something they might otherwise hide. Like, yeah, I, I, I'm in favor of that being public. But is that should that be public for everything? I understand well, that's in the way the tax it. records are. Like, tax records are not actually public. That po- politicians make it, they can make it available. Right. I mean, I don't know. I guess I feel like this is something that is. Could an employer search and see, like, oh, well. Well, yeah, they know. can. Jocelyn is a registered Republican. I don't think that she would fit in at our company. They could do that. I mean, I think we haven't, as far as I know, seen that kind of bias against people for their political affiliations. But I don't know. It doesn't bother me that that information is public. John, what do you think? I don't know. I don't have a really strong... It is interesting, though, that we say it's so sacrosanct what you do in the ballot box. And then when you know someone's party affiliation and which elections they voted in, you can surmise. So there's that part of it. That, I think, is why you're sort of asking the question. Yeah. or I'm surprised it hasn't been more weaponized, actually. Yeah. You know, yeah. I mean, I think it's sort of like the the whether you voted or not question is really nobody's business. I don't right. know yeah, why I that's agree. anybody's it's, business. I sort of agree. That's I interesting. I, I mean, what that. gets weaponized are contributions, yeah, right? Sure. Which should be public. We want those to be public. But maybe the actual just record of when you voted and how you registered should be private. I don't know. I have to think about it more. And who your friends are. <laughs> that's on Facebook. So that's, that's definitely and public record. And who you're records. married <laughs> to and who your children are <laughs> if you have a spouse or children. Who your pets are. Okay, let's move on. Uh, We also have a Slate Plus segment for the lucky Slate Plus subscribers. And our Slate Plus segment today is going to be about Chris Christie. What was he thinking sunbathing on his private beach? And could his approval rating drop to zero? (laughs) We'll talk about that. If you're not yet a Slate Plus member, go to slate.com slash GabFest Plus. This episode of the GabFest is sponsored by Aura Frames. Are you ready to win Mother's Day? Cement your reputation as the best gift giver in your family. Give the moms in your life an Aura digital picture frame preloaded with decades of family photos. That mom will love looking back on childhood memories, seeing you what you're up to today, checking out grandkids, checking out cousins. And even better, with unlimited storage and an easy-to-use app, you can keep on updating your mom's frame with new photos so that it's a gift that keeps on giving. This is how I live in my family. I gave my mother an aura frame. It was either for Mother's Day or for her birthday. She absolutely adores it. She's constantly hectoring me to update it with more photos, which I do. I also gave my girlfriend's mother an aura frame. And I hope she hectors my girlfriend to update it with more photos. But it is a present that will bring absolute delight to a mother in your life. And they have a great deal for Mother's Day. 
GabFest listeners can save on this perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A frames.com. Use code GABFEST at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. President Trump will have a sit-down bilateral meeting with Vladimir Putin on Friday in Germany at the sideline of the G20 summit. This is uh, more like a meeting of mafia dons than a kind of sober diplomatic council. You have these two very macho, uh, very crude, often very crude men. One of them has a famous capacity for deft manipulation and negotiation. The other one is Donald Trump. They are expected to discuss Syria, Ukraine, uh, perhaps sanctions, maybe North Korea, but they are not expected to discuss Russian meddling in the U.S. election. Because there's nothing to talk about on that front. Why would that be relevant? So why are they having a formal discussion rather than sort of one of these informal pull-asides, John? So this is speculation. The people I've talked to in the national security com- community around the in, in the administration, they want no room for improvisation. The president is, is a famous improviser and particularly on the Russia front, he's an improviser. He was obviously his most famous improvisation with Russian officials was in the Oval Office where he not only weighed in on uh, having fired James Comey and calling him a nut job and saying that the, with the uh, um, investigation gone, it took pressure off him. But then he also gave Russians some information that, that he, he maybe oughtn't have. Um, from the Israelis. From the from the Israelis, it's been reported. So they want to lock it down. Uh, also, there's real business to be done about Syria in particular. We got planes flying in the air, a lot of them, and Russian planes flying in the air. The Russians have now threatened the U.S. since three weeks ago when the U.S. shot down a Syrian airplane, which was the fourth U.S. military action uh, since the in like the last month against the Syrians. So things have heat and, heated up there, and there could just be a mistake, which would be bad. And the Russians have said, you know, we're going to track your airplanes if they fly east of the Euphrates and so forth. So um, they they got to get some actual business done there. And there's also, and I don't understand this as well. There's a North Korea piece where we could use some help from the uh, the U.S. could use some help from the Russians putting pressure on North Korea. Plus, then all the other stuff that America doesn't know about. You wouldn't want to leave that to the informalities of a chit chat. You want to have kind of a lot of that nailed down, which is why it was um, unhelpful, it seems to me, for the National Security Advisor, H.R. McMaster, to say, well, there's no agenda. You know, there's a super, super clear agenda. Now, some things may, may or may not be on or off the agenda, and we can discuss that. But, of course, there's an agenda and a very specific agenda, and uh, it'll be fascinating to see what actually comes out of it. Do you think I, – I would imagine that – that it would be very hard if you're a if you're HR McMaster or your Secretary of State uh, Tillerson or, or Secretary of Defense Mattis. I don't know if they'll be in the, those meetings, but if President Trump is saying something that is just terrible or stupid, like can they interrupt? Does the fact that there are all these other people there actually help constrain Trump or not? Because the the etiquette is that you would not dare to interrupt the president while he's saying some errant nonsense. What's the answer to that? I can't imagine they can interrupt. That seems... Well, they probably wouldn't interrupt because the what is the upside of interrupting? It's not like anything the president says is indelible. So the downside. <laughs> Wait a second. <laughs> I mean, no, but I mean, in these meetings, it's not like oh, you said you yeah. you, you Wait, said we no can back, have no backsies. Right, exactly. You said we can <laughs> have we can have Missouri. That's ours now. Um, so, and the downside, of course, would be to make the president look weak in front of uh, right. Vladimir Putin, which they all know is um, inadvisable. Would embolden right. Putin even more than he's been emboldened. So, I think basically they both want to get something 
And it's just a question of who gets to move the ball further down the, the field in the meeting in terms of getting a concession from one or the other. If you were uh, Putin, Emily, how would you play Trump? What would you do? Flatter him. That seems like the whole game, right? That if you go to him in this way that makes him feel strong and powerful and like he's still the most important guy in the world, that you'll get some major concession potentially in a kind of act of supposed benevolence as opposed to realizing that you've been manipulated. Yeah. Make a crude joke about Angela Merkel, probably. Right. How Trump should bring a Labrador to his meeting with her so because she's afraid of dogs. The uh, is that right, John? Putin did well, that's what Putin did in his meeting with her. No, no, I know oh, that. Yeah, um, but is that the right strategy? I think so. I think you can. I mean, if if uh, if you just judge by the things the president brings up himself in meetings of all different kinds, he he's um, obviously very focused on the fact that he won the election. So I think you could uh, you could talk to him, him, congratulate to him for doing an extraordinary thing because the, the electoral college in America is tilted towards the Democrats and that nobody saw it coming and that they were all wrong. He was right. Yeah. And that uh, the media in Russia is probably better than the media in the United States. And I think you could just go down the line with Snow White. It's like, what, what, who's the fairest of them all? You just play that theme over and over again. Uh, but you know, what's interesting about the U.S. relationship with Russia is relieving aside the president's real public softness towards Russia in his comments. There is the announcement that, that uh, the U.S. made that they're moving uh, anti-ballistic missiles back into Poland, which the Russians don't want. They're moving uh, and supporting weapons buildups in the Baltic states, which the Russians uh, don't want. Uh, there is all this action happening in Syria, which the Russians don't like. Uh, and and really, these are not these are not fake things. The Russians really don't want these things to be happening. So there is a, as there has been throughout the administration, a disconnect between what the president himself says and where the money and men are going, uh, men and women of the of the military are being deployed, and where the energies are, which are um, pushbacks against the Russians. And so that's a. Um, that's a, and, and, and I think also the president speaking in Poland on uh, Thursday um, uh, was was planning to um, increase his rhetorical maybe for the first time in his administration um, uh, pushing against the Russians rhetorically uh, in his speech in Poland. Well, what about the vote in the Senate? How much does that matter? That 98 to two vote? Well, it matters. Um, but, but explain what it is. That's so it. there was a sanctions vote in the Senate a couple of weeks ago to punish the Russians for both the support of the Assad regime in Syria and for meddling in the in the American elections. Secretary of State Tillerson said, we understand we have to hold the Russians to account, but don't limit our flexibility in terms of um, – and these would just be more economic sanctions. Um, and uh, don't limit our flexibility – with the Russians, and so there are there are reportedly efforts by the White House to to water down the sanctions as it moves through the House. That's sort of where things stand at the moment. And is that like a normal White House executive power move, or is that a pro-Russia, you know, John McCain, please don't be a hawk move, or is it I just hard to tell? It could kind of kind of be both. We don't know what the administration is actually cooking up with the Russians. Let's take the president at his word, which is his singular focus is the, the, the battle with ISIS. He would like Russian help in battling ISIS. And by the way, the Russians have gotten in the way of that essentially in Syria. So if he really wants something in exchange for help defeating ISIS, 
the president has definitely been clear. He was in my interview with him about China and North Korea that he was basically willing to trade away all the other issues with China if China helps him solve North Korea, whether it was trade or human rights abuses or the South China Sea. So you could imagine a similar transactional feeling about Russia. You help us with with ISIS and we'll you know, not be so exercised about Crimea and other things. So that kind of flexibility, they would want to retain and it wouldn't necessarily always be for the most nefarious purpose somebody could imagine. Emily, so President Trump in Poland was asked again about Russian meddling in the election. He equivocated about it, said they may have done it. Others may have done it too. There's a lot of meddling. God, we're back to that again. Oh, uh, what so I don't horrific. understand, I mean, I do understand because Trump's psychology is fairly clear, but this is one of these cases. It would be so much to his advantage to be outraged, to talk about the Russian meddling in the election with Putin, to complain about it, to stand up about it, to say, yes, I benefited from this, or I may have benefited, or they may have tried to benefit me, but this is outrageous, and we can't have you, Vladimir Putin, engaging in this. And he would get applause from everybody were he to do this, and yet yeah. he is he is unable to do it. Why? Because the legitimacy of his electoral victory is like his most deeply clung to need psychologically, and he can't part from the idea that anything that calls it into question is like a threat to his ego. That's that. So do you guys think that coming out of this meeting on Friday, there will be any significant policy announcement or significant thing that results from it? Significant. Significant. Hmm. It's really there'll be something because yeah. it's in everyone's interest to have something come out of it that plays decently well. They'll come up with countries. something about cooperation in Syria. There'll be new discussion of how we're going to cooperate that in Syria. That seems right. And whether it actually, you know, happens or not and how significant it is, different question. Right. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. On July 4th, the rocket's red glare was in North Korea, where Kim Jong-un fired his first ICBM, his first two-stage rocket, 1,700 miles up in the air and into, I think, the South China Sea. It was a, it didn't go that far, but but experts say that had he flattened out the trajectory or had his scientists flattened out the tra trajectory, it could have reached Alaska potentially, or or may, some even think it might have been able to reach Hawaii. And that were he able to put a nuclear weapon on top of such a rocket, he now has the capacity to reach the United States with with a nuclear weapon. It is a massive technological advance for the North Koreans to be able to put uh, a rocket like this out in the world and to to have it go forward successfully it this test comes at a particularly dismal time in u.s north korea china relations we have increasing tensions with china some over the south china sea just general tensions with with china uh and it's going to be the alpha dog who yeah I, well, they're going to be the alpha dog. Tensions with North Korea over the death of an American student that North Korea murdered um, as they held him in captivity. And a general sense that this is out of control. No one knows what to do about it. And it's the most dangerous region in the world. 
I think Trump has made uh, in North Korea. He's had diplomacy by assertion. Emily, he he said they wouldn't do an ICBM test, and of course they did it. It's um, a problem with declaring so, things that you have no control over. So, what can the United States do? So I'm now going to channel this excellent piece in The Atlantic by Mark Bowden. So it seems like there are four options and they're all dreadful. Um, And it's just a matter of picking the least bad one. We could have an all-out war with North Korea in which millions of people would die, certainly in Seoul in South Korea and in North Korea and maybe in California. It just sounds like totally horrible and impossible really to imagine that we would provoke that at this stage. We could try for a more limited military strike and hope that it didn't escalate into all-out war. That also seems like kind of a pipe dream. We could try to decapitate the regime by assassinating Kim Jong-un. It seems like it's really hard to pull that off. And uh, But kind of – I mean you can see the appeal of that at least is like a, a fantasy. And then the fourth option is acceptance that – They are going to have increasing military and missile capabilities, and we're going to have to learn to live with them. And, of course, the problem with that is this is a very unstable regime which nourishes its power by convincing enough people in North Korea that they're under threat and that they're big saber rattlers. And and the leader of this country seems – Like he's completely unreliable and it's terrifying to imagine him having this capability. On the other hand, it's self-destruction for him to actually use it. Can I push back on you? I don't – they don't seem unstable at all. It's like it's a country that's been run by the same family for 70 years. True. Without – you know, it's it's been uh, at peace with its neighbors for 70 years. It's been – you know, it's been – there's been bits and pieces on the borders and so forth but hasn't gone to war. It hasn't – it seems an entirely predictable country, actually. I'm, yeah, I meant that it sounds like Kim Jong-un himself is like maybe mentally unstable, but maybe we don't know that. So are you suggesting that like big deal? Um, why why yeah. do we imagine this is so threatening? Yeah, I'm, I'm saying big deal. What's the big deal? It's like, yes, it's another nuclear armed country with technology and in the same way that it's upsetting that Pakistan and India – and Israel and China and France and the UK and, and Russia the United States. and the United States all have nuclear weapons and they're all pointing them at each other. It's definitely an existential threat to the United States. And it is not like there's no reason to think that they would use them. And and therefore, why do we feel it to be such a panic button uh, on our foreign policy? Uh, I would add the this is would be option four, which is basically acquiesce to the North Korea getting a nuclear weapon and that Hoping that they won't use it is the best option, given how bad the other three are. Uh, Do you feel as sanguine as David does about the idea? I have of no. Well, uh, what I don't know, I have no idea. I, also I mean, feel like I, it's hard to judge. Acquiescence means you have to guess that he's not crazy. And and you can say, well, you know, you can do more than that. You can think like, why would a person cook off a nuclear weapon when he knows that the response would be annihilation. I mean, it would, uh, so why would he do that? And that seems like a reasonable question to ask. But then the, everybody I've talked to about North Korea says, we have no idea the pathways of this guy's mental circuitry and of North Korea's mental circuitry. Other people say, look, that what, what it's about is, is North Korean self-image and that having the bomb is sufficient to make the great leader 
feel great about himself and that's all he needs. He doesn't need to use it. He just needs to have it. Uh, so therefore, once he gets it, he'll consider himself great and be in better negotiating position and, and then he won't use it. The inspiration to believe all of that stuff about him not wanting to use it is when people, including the Secretary of Defense, articulate exactly what a war would look like. It's not that it's not a problem in the world, but it's mostly a problem for China. Right. right, which is interesting because China's not really doing anything to right. stop this. It's on China's border. It is China's only treaty partner, I believe. And it's the country if, – if North Korea kind of falls into destability, it's the country that will be overrun with refugees. And so it's really – you know, we want, we want China to handle this. They should you know, act as the constraint and the break on North Korea. And for us to – it's not that we shouldn't do anything about North Korea. It's just that the idea that this is the should be the singular or the massive focus of United States foreign policy seems to me completely misguided. Trump did try to have China take the lead on this and maybe his like weird Twitter giving up on it is the problem and that strategy should return, but it's not like he didn't think of that, right? But and then, what was the strategy? He did a tweet. He said, oh, China will take know. care of it. That's yeah. not a strategy. <laughs> well, well, no, they talked no. about it. He he's talked, talked to, about it a lot. I mean, yeah, he he's, talked to, he's yeah. laid off China on a number of places where he could have put more pressure on them. And so he's done more than just a tweet. The, the other, another interesting point about this is that the, one of the problems of having no staff at the State Department and having a relatively robust military and a, and the de defense department is relatively staffed and obviously the US military is always on alert is that when you don't have you don't have people who work in diplomacy you don't have any alternative set of ideas so there aren't actually people in the administration who have counter proposals besides these military military proposals because the state department just doesn't have anyone working there what about the idea that when we respond to the temper tantrum, we're kind of keeping up our role in the play and that like that's actually what they want us to do is to pay attention to them. And right. So in some way, it's the status quo, which has been stable if, you know, kind of threatening that we want to maintain. And so maybe just continuing to play our part in this weird game is what we're supposed to do. Right. We allow them. If we ignored them, then instead of just banging the sippy cup, they'd throw it through the window. Right. Hmm. I have no idea. I, I still come come back to this point, which I, I know it's it doesn't make any sense, but I always find it weird that U.S. foreign policy is so focused on the countries that are angry at us, North Korea, difficult, Iran. like you know, complaining about us. We get really upset that someone doesn't like us or that they're our enemy. Whereas why don't – if you just spent all your time saying, OK, this is a good country. Let's just – we're going to we're gonna use as much energy as we put on North Korea as now we're going to use it to focus on coast improving our ties with Costa Rica and like bolstering trade with Costa Rica and helping out Costa Rica. Like why wouldn't that be a more productive use of our time in the long run? I don't well, I, think I don't that, get it. Well, I think like people, people just want to solve problems. Well, <laughs> they want to respond to threats, right? Yeah. They and, see threats and maybe if we I don't know, maybe well, there's I think the the rush I mean, so you obviously there's I mean not to go totally overboard, but obviously it starts with the Nazi threat in the 30s and then it's the Russians in the, the during the Cold War. It's Ann Applebaum's argument for arguing basically everybody's too late on Russia, that because they weren't sufficiently vigilant, Russia was able to recapture, com basically play the West and now put the, the West in this difficult position. That's the argument is if you don't pay attention to them, they 
you know, they feel free to go, you know, follow their natural national interest in a way that end, ends up hurting you and leaves you options that are bad. Well, except I would, I would say, I mean, this is going back to the Russian topic. Like, what do we have in Europe now? We have democratic, vibrant Poland, a German, a unified Germany, East Germany, part of a, a unified democratic, economically vi- vibrant Germany, a Czech, a Czechia, a Slovakia, but, uh, Estonia, well, Lithuania. the Crimea. Remember but, that part? But I think people would argue you have all of those things because of the vigilance of, you know, 50 years of U.S. policy, being vigilant about the threat of the Russians and supporting all those countries in the conflict with Russia. And if people had just said, oh, let Russia do its thing, none of those countries would be in the states you're talking about. Well, or well, or I would say like after, you know, when when we've provided huge support for democratic forces and these and economic alliances for these countries and brought them into the fold. Sure. But also in part because the Russians weren't able to keep up their both race with the U.S. and their dominance of those of Eastern Europe, which would they only if there had been no race with the U.S., they would have had more time and energy. I'm, I'm just following out this this yeah. argument would have been would would have been able to keep their dominance more intact because they would, wouldn't have had to take care of two things as opposed to. What do you think is going to happen? North Korea? Do you think we're going to go to war? No. Hmm. no. What's right. the face saving measure we're going to yeah, that's, get? I mean, the, the Russian... Or give ch- them, yeah. right? Give the North Koreans some way to get on the off-ramp here. I don't think they want to be on that off-ramp. Well, I think they want... If this is tied up with national identity as much as everything I read says it is, then they want some boost to their national ego that... It's hard to imagine one short of nuclear weapons. That, now, I know right? this is like, right. A fruit basket at mm-hmm. uh, Christmas time is not going to help you. Um, and they don't seem to care about how people are suffering and they're poorer sure. because of economic sanctions. So therefore what? I don't see what face saving thing we get and more what we have to offer that's better than progress toward a nuclear weapon right. standoff. Well, that's why when you ask people like what's the end state, a nuclear weapon is the fulfillment of the of the of the dream. Like you can't give them a, a substitute for that. I, I always think. also have I trouble at this point in the conversation because this is how we I mean literally cherish our nuclear weapons. Like we think it's okay for so I just have fundamentally have trouble with that. I, I know it would be better if there was disarmament and like if I could choose North Korea would not be getting nuclear warheads, but I always feel like there's this fundamental we act like it's outrageous and yet <laughs> Why, you know, we like, it's of course, this is how people feel like they get to be, you know, the big player on the international stage. Hello, it is Ryan. And I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Let's go to cocktail chatter. John, what wonderful bit of chatter do you have? What wonderful bourbon, ancient bourbon, well-seasoned bourbon of chatter do you have to offer today? Uh, well, let's not uh, raise the bar that high. 
I have a chatter which is about the LA Times did a great uh, investigation of the counties in which kids are dependent on Medicaid and the and the CHIP healthcare program. The cuts the president is supporting in both the House and the Senate bill will, will disproportionately affect the people that who who uh, support him. Six hundred and twenty-two, for example, of the counties of the seven hundred and eighty counties where a majority of the children are on Medicaid or CHIP have fewer than fifty thousand people, which is to say, are rural counties. So. What, what struck me when I was reading this is it's familiar in the sense that there have been a lot of these stories about how the president, the policies the president supports will hurt the people who voted for him. But the next step that I went to was just imagining for a moment if the president used and what we haven't seen him use is his considerable political talents and his talent for marketing and his talent for calling out politicians in the service of the people who he says uh, he has come to Washington to protect, which is to say the forgotten people. If he actually – it's not to say that the things he supports will hurt them. We've seen that reported. But imagine what would happen if he actually threw his back into with the tweets and the public comments and all of that, an affirmative agenda actually for these people who are now being uh, reported on uh, as the as some of the disproportionate – uh, adversely losers. affected losers in the in and it, it it struck me of something that I've thought for a while, but you can never say because people will immediately flip out. But is that his? There's a lot of his presidency that's actually quite conventional. And the minute you say that, people will say, "No, he's a threat to 241 years of uh, of American democracy." But he has basically decided to sell in a very conventional way a healthcare program. I mean, it hasn't done terribly well through the Congress, but it's basically a conventional Republican what they've been working on thing as opposed to saying, no, you're going to make a healthcare program that's going to absolutely benefit and help the forgotten man that I came to Washington to protect. And he's really done really almost nothing for that constituency in terms of the full force of his skills. And that's been we see that across a, a variety of um, of things that he hasn't done. Um, so that's what struck me about this very good L.A. Times piece, which is just about the effect of these Medicaid cuts on kids. And it was written by Noam Levy. And the headline is kids in pro-Trump rural areas have a lot to lose if GOP rolls back Medicaid. Emily, what is your chatter? I have been following with great interest a case in Florida involving the prosecutor in Orlando. She is newly elected. She's the first black female district attorney in Florida. Her name's Arama Sayala. And a couple of months ago, she announced she was not going to charge the death penalty in a case um, that involved a killing of a police officer and that she also wasn't going to charge the death penalty at all in office. Rick Scott, who's the governor of Florida, took all these death penalty cases away from her. There's a Florida statute that may or may not give him the authority to do that. And so there were arguments last week about Ayala's authority um, clashing with the governor in front of the Florida Supreme Court. And what interests me here is the kind of question of prosecutorial independence. So that's normally a value that has bipartisan support and that law and order conservatives might be more attached to. But in this case, where a prosecutor used her discretion toward a more lenient result, this Republican governor has challenged her. And there's also been talk of stripping funding from her office as these cases are parceled out to other prosecutors and possibly of trying to suspend her from office, even though she was duly elected. So that's all interesting. And then there's this question about whether prosecutors 
are indeed exercising their discretion when they announce that they're going to handle a whole group of cases differently in advance. So we saw this with President Obama when he said that he was going to, in general, not deport the relatives of the Dreamers. There was this pushback from the courts. Will you saying to him, that's not case by case discretion. In Obama's case, he did actually say, I do retain. The Justice Department said, actually, we can make a different decision case by case. But there's just this really interesting kind of conceptual question about how when you say in advance how you're probably going to handle a whole bunch of cases, is that the kind of discretion we think that prosecutors ought to have? I, I wonder about this this hypocrisy on the prosecutorial discretion and, and Rick Scott trying to take away her discretion. Are we all hypocrites? Well, yes. Are we all yes. hypocrites all the time? I mean, yes. Is, it, yes. is everyone just as bad? Oh. We, Everyone's not just as bad, but everyone engages in hypocrisy and inconsistency. Hmm. That doesn't mean that there aren't degrees of it, though, right? I mean, when you see someone making a kind of naked political move that they would never, ever make in the other direction, it's fair to call them on it. It just feels like so many of these stories, and maybe it's because I read the liberal media, are liberals beating up on conservatives for this. And I wonder if it's because conservatives have been worse about it or just – that's just where my biases are. Well, I would argue that sometimes I think Republicans are more ruthless about it. They don't get all tangled up in these like, oh, wait, but we said yesterday X. Like they just go ahead and do it. I mean, now I'm talking more about the kind of Mitch McConnell arm of the Republican Party than about Rick Scott. Mm. Uh, I have a totally much cheerier chatter than either of you guys. Mine are I have two really lovely things to recommend to people. So it'll make up one will inoculate against John's depressing chatter and one will inoculate against Emily's depressing chatter. To Good inoculate against John's uh, depressing chatter, I have another California – I have a piece of California content, which is uh, Ear Hustle. Do you guys know this podcast? Have you no. Heard this? No. Ear but Hustle. I love the title. It's a, a podcast out of San Quentin Prison in California. Oh. oh, I saw a tweet about this. Is it good? It's fantastic. It's prisoners talking about different issues. And the first episode is about cellmates, cellies. And about how you get along with your celly and what it's like and what's important in a celly and, and some awesome. of the issues. It's it is just brilliant. It's brilliantly produced. Um, they have uh, obviously producers, uh, people inside who are gathering an audio, and then there's external producers from Radiotopia, the network that produces it. Um, it's wonderful. I, I I can't recommend it enough. Ear hustle from Radiotopia. And then um, to inoculate against em Emily's, uh, I will chatter about the a wonderful movie, which everyone should see, called The Big Sick. It's made by Kumail Nanjani and Emily Gordon. He is the star of Silicon Valley. And it's a rom-com. And about it's about him and his wife. Her having terminal, right? not terminal, but no, get stroke. She, fall, she, she falls into a, a coma. Yeah. His, his, his uh, sort of girlfriend falls into a coma. And it's about the relationship that develops between him and her parents, between him and his parents who are trying to marry him off to a devout uh, Muslim, Pakistani, American Muslim girl. It's the best rom-com I think I've ever seen. It's really funny. It's warm. It's just, it's a perfect perfect movie to go see and didn't uh, he write it with his wife and it's like relates to something that happened yeah to yeah wife. it happened yeah it happened to them kind of awesome yeah. Yeah. also he's dinesh in silicon valley yes uh and he's he's great the movie's just it's just couldn't be better it's it makes you think it restores your faith in moviedom and actually hey i've mentioned two great things let me mention a third great thing also to listen to which is being in the studio with john reminded me that you should be listening to Whistle Stop, John's fantastic, rich, textured, weird podcast about presidential history. 
If you are not listening to Whistle Stop, which is one of the treasures of Panoply and of Slate, you should be listening to Whistle Stop. John is probably blushing as I say this. Are you blushing, John? Yeah. <laughs> uh, that is our show for today. The Political Gap Fest is produced by Jocelyn Frank. Our intern is Kevin Townsend. Please follow us on Twitter at, at SlateGabFest. That is a really good place to follow us. Don't follow us around the supermarket, but do follow us on Twitter. You can follow me around the supermarket. If you've seen is me that a problem for you? Generally, people just line up to follow you around the I've supermarket? I've met a lot of GabFest fans in the supermarket. Yeah, but they're not following you. No. Not that probably really sweetly maybe coming up to say hi. I once followed Ernie Moniz around the supermarket. Right, because you liked yeah. his mustache. He didn't have a mustache. He had I a, he he liked had his hair. Awesome hair. hair. He had like hair. hair. Yeah. Sorry. I once followed uh, Loudon Wainwright um, at the sh- old Shakespeare bookstore in New York uh, City on 82nd and uh-huh. Broadway. And how did that go for you? Uh, it went fine. I got him to sign one of his albums. Uh, it was CD at the um, History, I think I had him sign. Anyway, he was very – he acted, I should say. He, I don't know what his internal monologue was, but he acted as though he was very happy for the request. I'm sure he was. Yeah. Wouldn't you? You'd be happy. Oh, yeah. No, I'd be happy. I'd be Someone happy, came and I'd be happy if I was Loudon Wainwright. You know, a whistle stop and asked to be signed. Anyway, for Emily Bazelon and John Dickerson, so glad we're all together. I'm David Plotz. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next week. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Full work limited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice. All about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets.